Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our passage this morning, text for our sermon, is from Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, thank you now for your grace. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us. And Lord, let our eyes be open to the power and the reality of Christmas. Lord, that not everything is roses and brightness, but there are dark things also that surround the Christmas story. Indeed, we live in a world of both light and dark as we await your return. Transform us now by the word, convict us and convince us of this truth, and may we leave this place differently than the way we came in, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we recently got a subscription to Disney Plus, and um, I was sort of against it at first because we have, you know, People said, no more cable, no more satellite television, you know, $135 a month. Let's just get the subscriptions we want. And then you find yourself getting a subscription here, a subscription there, a subscription here, and a subscription there. So I was against it at first, but I've really enjoyed it. And we recently watched um, The Mandalorian. I'm the only one, I guess, okay. Which is an offshoot of the Star Wars series. And it tells the story of a bounty hunter who is hired to find 
and deliver a baby to some nefarious group. And the Mandalorian is this bounty hunter. He comes, of, he comes from like a group of bounty hunters and they typically care nothing uh, for the bounty that they are to deliver. And indeed, initially, he cares nothing for this cute little green infant that he is to capture and deliver. But upon delivery, he can tell that the people that he's giving and handing this child over to um, mean to do him harm. And he can tell this child is not only innocent, but gifted. And he receives his payment and he leaves, but he's troubled by his conscience. Now, Mandalorians are typically not known for their conscience. They're known for their deadly efficiency and their emotional indifference, but not their moral compass, not their conscience. He returns shortly afterward and steals back the child, breaking the bounty hunter hunter code, which launches a galaxy-wide hunt for the child. And from that point forward, this legendary warrior, the Mandalorian, finds himself as protector and guardian to a baby, shuttling him from, to, from one sort of galaxy backwater to the next to keep him hidden from the dark forces that would take his life and eliminate the future threat that this child will one day become to the wicked powers. Now, if you watched the original Star Wars movies back in the 70s and 80s like I did, or maybe even the more recent iteration of the Star Wars movies, you know who this little green baby is. He's Yoda. And Yoda is the legendary Jedi Master who lived in a dank swamp cave and trained Luke Skywalker and other Jedis to fight the dark side. You know, Yoda has become this universal catchword for someone who is so wise and good at a particular skill that we use it colloquially to refer to a person that you seek advice from. We may refer to Warren Buffett as like the Yoda of investing, or Donald Knuth as the Yoda of Silicon Valley. At the seminary, there's a particular professor there who we call like the Yoda of pastoral ministry. But what makes Yoda so compelling is just how weak and vulnerable he is. If Yoda was physically imposing and really big and powerful, it wouldn't work. Like the magic of Yoda wouldn't work. It's the paradox, the paradox of his sort of moral virtue and spiritual power against his smallness and physical weakness, his limitations, his vulnerability. And that's what makes it all work. That's what makes it so intriguing because he has all of this, all of these gifts and he's tiny, he's so small. There's a famous verse from Psalm 8-2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy 
and the Avenger. The idea is that, that even though children and infants are, you know, they're small and they're weak, in comparison to the mighty, at various times it has been through these small and insignificant, seemingly insignificant mouths that God chooses to reveal his majesty. And it's a terrible fact of history that children suffer violence at the hands of adults. History is filled with countless slaughter of innocents. When one tribe raided a village of another tribe, slaughtering and pillaging, enslaving the vanquished. Even in our recent memories, the gas chambers of World War II and the Holocaust did not spare the children. Even just a few years ago, the school in Connecticut where a bunch of kindergartners were killed by a shooter. Children are abused every day in our world and some of you may have been abused as children. It's really every parent's worst nightmare and every parent seeks to protect their own children from abuse or violence or danger. And so it's of incredible theological significance that Jesus did not just show up on the scene at 30 years old to begin his ministry. He could have done that. He could have just showed up like some wandering drifter as a fully grown human being at 30 or whatever, however old he actually was, we don't really know, around 30, to start his ministry, but he didn't. He entered the world like every other human being as a baby, defenseless. In fact, the birth narratives of Matthew, Mark, and Luke prove first, and this is why they're important, they prove first that Jesus was a real human being with a family history. Lest someone should say that he wasn't real or he was a phantom or a figment of someone's imagination, a legendary teacher who may never have existed. The Gospels want to show us through the birth narratives that Jesus was a real person, born into a real family. And second, it shows that like all human beings, Jesus was subjected to the vulnerability, physical weakness, and the danger of childhood. It seems like a small detail, but it's actually sort of mind-blowing that the Son of God was a baby. He needed to be nursed when he got hungry. He needed his diapers changed by his parents. He needed to be patted on Mary's shoulder and rocked to sleep. And, and this is key, he needed protection. God needed protection. Just let that sink in for a moment. That's not a statement of hyperbole or melodrama. It's a theological statement because God the Father did not need protection. God the Spirit did not need protection, but God the Son needed protection. The whole point of the birth narrative is not just this man is God, but rather 
God became a man, truly and really and actually, and everything that that entails to be human, including the weakness and vulnerability. And so the birth of Christ is not just a sweet story we tell this time of year, and we all know that it can get stale and old and rote, but from a theological perspective, the birth of Christ is a radical act of solidarity with you and I as human beings in all of our weakness and vulnerability and limitations. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose not the strong and powerful things, but what is weak in the world to shame the strong, a baby. And in the birth narrative, the strong that God wanted to shame was Herod who has become the monster of the biblical Christmas story. Someone said, you know, we're going to church this morning to hear about a monster. But Herod's just as much a part of the story as the magi, the wise men, the shepherds, or anyone else. Russell Moore says, Jesus was not born into a gauzy, snowy winter wonderland of sweetly singing angels and cute reindeer nuzzling one another at the side of his manger. He was born into a war zone under the rule and reign of one of history's most bloodthirsty tyrants. And so for Jesus to be born in the days of Herod might have been the worst possible timing for a new king of Israel to be born. And on some level, you do have to wonder, like, what is God up to like, what, it, what was God thinking? Because really, it was like the worst time in history. In fact, even secular pagan historians, right, have said that there could not have been a more chaotic time for a supposed Messiah and Savior of Israel to be born into world history. It was like a match, you know, in a powder keg, the birth of Jesus at this time and in this place during the reign of Herod. So who exactly is Herod? Most of us have heard of Herod, but Herod is this Roman appointed governor of Judea who took office in 40 BC. And he built massive palaces and fortresses and water systems, and he's responsible for rebuilding Solomon's temple. In fact, scholars from that study this period of history refer to this period of time as Second Temple Judaism because Herod built the Second Temple. Remember, the First Temple was built by Solomon and then the Babylonians invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and the Temple in 590 BC. And all these years later, when the Jews came back from exile, Herod is the one that really built and beautified the Temple. Some of his architectural achievements still stand today in Israel. And if you go there, you can see some of the palaces and fortresses he built. He was an incredibly violent and paranoid ruler, like many rulers of history. But he was special in this regard. Herod was infamous for his violence. Herod killed 
the family members of the Hasmonean ruling family, which is sort of like Carlo Gambino taking out Albert Anastasia to take over the New York mob. Herod had many members of the Sanhedrin executed, which would be like the president killing members of the Supreme Court. Herod slaughtered members of his own family, his wife Maryam, his mother-in-law Alexandra, and three of his sons. In fact, he was so infamous that Caesar himself, who was Herod's boss, said it would be better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, safer. But Herod is simply the latest installment of satanic opposition to the people of God. Centuries earlier, Pharaoh determined to wipe out the children of Israel in Egypt. But God raised up midwives to save the babies from death and another son of Abraham, Moses, out of the bulrushes and out of the wilderness to be a deliverer. Then an obscure boy named David, whom God appointed to be king, was pursued by his predecessor, a wicked king named Saul, who sought to take his life, but God protected David until Saul eventually died and David took the throne. And then Satan recruited Haman in the book of Esther, who threatened to use his power in Persia and his connection to King Xerxes to wipe out the Jews altogether but God raised up Esther and Mordecai to save his people. And so what Satan means for evil, God always means for good for the people of God. But we should not be surprised that Satan's job is to be Satan, to be the devil, to oppose the people of God at every opportunity and to take advantage of every opportunity to thwart God's redemptive plans in the world. That should come as no surprise. When we read history in the Bible, it doesn't, but when it happens in our lives, we are shocked by that. Satan's job is to be the devil, always looking to oppose the works of the creator God. Now the Magi, back to our story for a moment, and the Magi arrive in Jerusalem asking about the birth of a king of the Jews. And when Herod finds out, he becomes suspicious and tries to turn the Magi into unwitting informants. They said, we have come to worship the king of the Jews. Where is he? And he says, oh, the king of the Jews? Of course, he's thinking, you know, you're looking at him. Why don't you go find him? He said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But being warned in a dream by an angel of Herod's plans, they returned to their country by another route. And this bought Joseph and Mary time as God dispatched another angel to preserve the infant Jesus' life. What's important to realize is that the baby Jesus, I don't know that I like using that phrase, the baby Jesus, but Jesus is a baby, all right? When Jesus was a baby. He was in real danger. He was a real flesh and blood person with all the benefits and weaknesses of flesh, 
In other words, if Herod's soldiers had gotten to him and slashed him, he would have bled and died. So, oh, that can't be. I mean, Jesus was not Superman, where bullets bounced off of his chest. He was real flesh and blood, a true human being, with all of its limitations and weaknesses. And we can tend to, and you've heard me say this before, we can tend to view Jesus as he was a human, but because he was God, he wasn't really a human, as if he was like Superman, or you know, that he, he sort of you know, floated around in the earth just pretending to be a human. In fact, one of the early heresies that rose up during the early church was called docetism from the Greek word dokeo, which means seemed. It only seemed that Jesus was a human being. It only seemed that he was incarnate in flesh, but he actually was. And this, I'm arguing this morning, this very thing is actually the miracle and power and sort of mind-blowing reality of Christmas. That God did not sort of just step into humanity for a moment, but really became a human being with all of its limitations. There were things Jesus couldn't do. There were things Jesus didn't know. There were times where he was weak, vulnerable, tired, irritated. I mean, when Jesus fell asleep on the boat with the disciples when the storm rages, it's not some grand master plan. He's tired. He'd been preaching the night before. He's wasted. He's wiped out. You ever come home from like a really hard, busy day, and by the time you go to bed at 10.30 p.m., I mean, you are out like a light. Like that happened to Jesus. I can imagine like them waking him up feeling groggy. My dogs wake me up at three, four in the morning. I have two little dogs, and I don't know, as they get older, they're having bladder problems. They've got to go out. And when they wake me up, I want to throw them out the window. I'm so angry. Because I don't get great sleep as it is. So, So Jesus wasn't pretending to be vulnerable to make us feel better. It was a radical act of solidarity with human beings, the birth of Jesus. It says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph saying, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord, excuse me, uh, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now as I thought about this, one of the things I thought was, we know the end of the story. So we're not really worried about like the potential danger that Jesus was in, because we're like, yeah, he was all right. Like, he made it. It was okay. Herod was a bad guy. You know, he just appeared on the scene. He went away. Everything was fine the whole time. But for Joseph and Mary, that was not the case, especially Joseph, a father. Joseph needed to be afraid and uncertain about the outcome of Jesus for, for Jesus to be safe. Like, he, like, if he knew the end of the story in the beginning, he would have said, you know, I'm not, he'll be fine, Mary. I know how this is going to turn out. But he has to be afraid. In the providence and sovereignty of God, Joseph has to fear for the life of his adopted son. That has to happen. 
That has to happen for him to heed the words of the angel and scurry off in the night with his infant son to protect him. There had to be uncertainty. There had to be fear for Joseph. There had to be that sense that he didn't know how things were going to turn out. That had to happen. You know, one of the problems with the, story, the big stories in the Bible that we know really well is our familiarity sort of makes us unfamiliar. Because we sort of glaze right over some of the details that we, we just don't think a whole lot about. And so we think we know the story well, but we'd be remiss not to sort of dig deeper and dig our heels in to find out and sort of step into what was really happening for Joseph and Mary and everyone involved. I mean, just think for a moment about world events right now. Like, we may say that we know that God is on the throne and in the end he's gonna make everything right, but for like our day-to-day lives, when we look at world history, like people die, crazy things happen, you know, dictators invade countries and now they've got nuclear weapons. Like, we live at a really like uncertain time in history. And we're we're required to to look to God in faith, hope, and expectation. But, you know, when you read the news and you look at the television, there is a sense there that, I don't know how things are going to turn out right now, at least for my life. I know in the end God's going to make it all work out, but, you know, wars and famines and outbreaks and diseases, I mean, those things happened. And they do happen. Now, when Herod found out he'd been duped by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. What's startling about that is he asks the Bible experts, where, where do the prophets say this child is to be born? And they said, well, it says he's to be born in Bethlehem. And you'd think that the fact that the child was actually born in Bethlehem, he would think, oh, like a prophecy is coming true. Like, maybe I should, but he doesn't. He's, he's, he's completely satanic, completely possessed by Satan in his desire to snuff out the life of the Messiah. And he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. And Matthew quotes the gospel writer, Matthew quotes a passage from Jeremiah that Matt Tebbs read from Jeremiah 31 and 15, which describes the sorrow of Jewish mothers as their children died in the exile. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Rachel was the mother of the tribes of Israel, and the verse from Jeremiah describes the lament of these mothers for the children of Israel who died in the exile. Daniel Darling writes, underneath the warm glow of our Christmases is a dark thread of violence, signs of a cosmic war against all that is good. And do you know why this is important for us? That statement and this story about Herod is really good for us 
because the Bible does not give us a fake, phony, pretend picture of Christmas. It doesn't give us an everything's just fine picture of Christmas. That's the Christmas we want, but we know deep down that's not the world we live in. And we celebrate every year because it's a time for respite sort of from the darkness of the world, and that's appropriate. It's appropriate for us to come together and our kids come home from college or wherever and spend time with us and we make a special meal and we enjoy each other's company and exchange gifts. Those are wonderful, good things, and I hope in the next couple days you do that. But the Bible's not a fairy tale trying to pretend that we live in a world where everything is light and sweetness and happiness. The Bible is gritty, it's earthy. The writers of the pages had dirt in their fingernails. They lived in the real world and they saw violence every single day, like we do. It gives us a real picture of the dark powers in our world that seek to destroy everything that is good and holy and right. And here's why it's a blessing. This story is a blessing for us because it helps us walk the tightrope and keep the balance in our lives, keeping us from a naive, overly optimistic view of the world that refuses to acknowledge evil. And we've seen that in our day. Some people can't even say the word sin, barely able to acknowledge that there's evil in the world. And it also keeps us from a despair that only sees violence and horror, right? Sort of a naturalistic, materialist worldview that only sees chaos in the universe. And neither one of those are true. There's wickedness in our world and there's also a whole lot of good. And both of those things exist side by side for now, for the time being. In Jesus we see both the crying of Rachel for her children and the promise of those tears that will be one day wiped away in a new lasting kingdom of God. We see the triumph of the Christ child. And we're told that when Herod did die in Matthew 2.19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, all these dreams, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, did you know that there is not a single verse of Scripture in the Old Testament that said the Messiah would be a Nazarene? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say he would live in Nazareth. But what most scholars believe is that the prophets prophesied that he would be despised and rejected of men. And Joseph and Mary settling in this backwater of Israel in a place like Galilee and Nazareth fulfilled that passage of scripture because it was kind of a low down dirty place. It was just like, you know, if, if you won the, 
ancient lottery, you would not spend your shekels to buy a house in Nazareth. You know, you'd buy in the hills of Jerusalem or Haifa or somewhere. You wouldn't go to Nazareth. It may have been, I've got to be careful now because, you know, you've got to be careful what you say, but I don't know, at one time, like, the Appalachian regions of West Virginia or something, like, you know, I mean, I know, you know, places are gentrifying now, so I've got to be careful, but I mean, just think of a place you would not want to live. A place that when you hear of someone coming from a certain area, you think, Oof. When we moved to St. Louis, we were struck by the fact that people, the first thing they ask you is, where did you go to high school? Right? I mean, that's what they ask you here. I mean, California, I mean, nobody cares. But here it matters, right? Because where you go to high school might say a little bit of something about where you lived and your family background and all of those things. But Joseph goes through all this over the course of, you know, who knows how long this time period was, only to settle in this backwater region called Nazareth. But what's instructive for us is the one who fiendishly held on to his power, Herod, was threatened by a child. But this one with all this power was vanished from history. And we read that and we say, yay, the bad guy loses in the end. But it could be that there is more Herod in us than we want to admit. Because we too are threatened by Jesus. We're threatened by the way he enters into our lives and disrupts our power and control. We're threatened by those things. And in this sense, King Herod's reaction to Christ is a picture of each one of us. Because the kingship of Jesus makes an absolute claim of authority. He summons us to unconditional loyalty. And so he serves as a powerful reminder in closing that we can't be neutral about Jesus. We either bow to him in worship and recognition of who he is, or we take the side of all of those who oppose him in history. We can resist him, or we can bow down in worship, repentance, and faith. Which one will it be? Let's pray. Father, it's a hard thing for us to hear that we are like King Herod, the monster of Christmas. But the truth is, is we can resist. Resist your kingship, your authority, and indeed many do. Many in our world, and maybe some of us here. Maybe we've confessed Jesus with our lips and with our mouth, but our hearts still resist his authority, his lordship, his kingship over our lives. Father, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, as you are bringing in your kingdom, that you would disarm us and cause us in our hearts to surrender to the lordship and kingship of this child who came into the world who was God and is God. 
and it's in his name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.